First, though, we are continuing to cover the story of a mother and daughter in Maple Ridge. They are calling on the provincial government to reevaluate exactly how the decisions are made when it comes to postponing so-called non-essential surgeries because of the pandemic. In this case, we're talking about a five-year-old girl with a genetic deformity that requires surgery, but that surgery has again been delayed. Yesterday, during the COVID-19 briefing, Health Minister Adrian Dix was asked about this case, said he wouldn't talk about specifics of one or two people, wouldn't talk about their health specifics in public, but did say this about the postponement of surgeries. But I would say this, the decisions about surgical postponements or changes or when surgeries take place are decisions made by doctors. And I think that's the important issue here. So when you ask, will we change the way we do that? The answer is no, in this sense, that we're going to continue to support our medical teams in making appropriate decisions around surgeries. And we will always continue to do that. So um, the way that we've done this, I think our surgical renewal plan in terms of overall postponements has been exceptional. We've made the very challenging decisions right now to ensure to to delay or postpone non-urgent scheduled surgeries. All of them will be renewed. That still doesn't help when we're talking about a five-year-old girl, again, who needs this surgery. Let's bring on her mother. Kaylee Valley is joining us now to talk more about where things stand with her daughter's surgery. Kaylee, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I know this has been a stressful week. Well, so many stressful weeks. But since this story first kind of came to light and people found out what was happening with your daughter, how have things been going as far as where you where you are now with with hoping to get that surgery and uh, and how is Jocelyn doing? Yeah, um, it's been it's been kind of a crazy week. Um, the story has caught some wind, and we've had so many people reach out showing their support and giving us um, so much positivity. So I'm so grateful for that um, that people have heard Jocelyn's story and what we've you know kind of been going through. Um, Jocelyn's doing really well. She's in kindergarten. Um, she, as you can tell from the videos, you know, she's a very happy kid and looking at her, you wouldn't know that she has so many things going on on the inside. Um, she still deals with pain daily. She's on antibiotics daily. Um, we have so many things we have to add into our daily routine to keep her comfortable. Um, so yeah, we are just we're still feeling um anxious to get our surgery date, but after, you know, these last few days, um I'm feeling really hopeful that, you know, it's going to be coming soon. Yes. And and for people that aren't familiar or maybe didn't see the story when it first came to light, can you talk a little bit about what kind of surgery was Jocelyn supposed to be having and what is it that's been delayed? Yeah, so Jocelyn has um, deformities in her kidneys and um, in her ureters. And ever since she was a baby, she would get sick with UTI infections, urinary tract infections. Um, And she's had multiple surgeries to correct this. And over time, she's just needed a little more work and, you know, a little more things um, to help her. And we're at the point where things have 
been a lot better at this age, but she still needs this one last surgery. There is um, a ureter stump um, in on her urethra, actually, and it collects urine and bacteria, and it doesn't drain properly. So the, um, the surgeons would like to go back in there and just remove that stump, and hopefully it'll just um, help the drainage of her urine and um, help prevent the UTIs that she's getting because in the past she's had so many UTIs um, that she's had kidney scarring and they've actually had to remove one of her kidneys um, about two years ago. And I understand too from from looking at this or from reading about this too, if this surgery is delayed for a great amount of time or if she doesn't get this, I understand too, there's a chance she could lose another kidney. Yeah, well, it definitely puts her at risk. Um, Her doctors have been amazing, and they put her on antibiotics every single day that prevents the UTIs. So she does have a layer of protection there, but it's not a forever solution. Um, It's not something she can stay on for a long period of time um, because she has had breakthrough infections where even though she's on these preventative medications, Um, she has still gotten these UTI infections and ended up in the hospital needing stronger antibiotics. And um, so if, yeah, if left too long, she gets more breakthrough infections and each breakthrough infection, you know, it causes damage to the kidneys. So long-term, yes, it definitely puts her other kidney um, at risk of damage if she has too many breakthrough infections, correct? And given that and the severity of that and the potential for that outcome, how does it sit with you that her surgery has been delayed, that her surgery is technically, I mean, it's not being considered an essential surgery. It's being considered elective. Yeah, um, it's really hard. As a parent um, who's, I've watched my daughter go through so much. She's five and she's had like multiple surgeries and scans and tests. I've seen her suffer. I've seen her in pain. Um, it's It's been terrible to watch, and I've seen her lose a kidney um, because of all these deformities that have been attacking her own body. So watching her go through that and knowing that, you know, she still has risk of continuous illness, it's, it's scary for me. I'm anxious. I really just want her to be better. I want her to live a normal life. And I don't want to have to be scared every day that, you know, maybe she's going to be getting UTI. We wake up and, you know, I'm asking how she's feeling and if she's okay. And we go through everything to make sure I don't have to take her to the hospital today to get, you know, a urine sample done. So we're always kind of living on edge to make sure that she's feeling okay. And um, yeah, it's hard um, because I know that her doctors in the hospital are absolutely amazing and they go above and beyond for her. And I know they are probably just also very overwhelmed with everything and the elective surgeries being on hold, it's not their choice. It's that goes above them. So um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's been tough situation. It's kind of just been a waiting game for everyone. It feels like. Uh, Yesterday, the health minister was asked about this, uh, this, 
exact surgery was asked about to what's happening to Jocelyn and Adrian Dix responded it was during the the, um, the news conference yesterday uh, obviously saying that he wasn't going to talk about a specific case but he did say that the decision on whether or not a surgery goes ahead is a decision that's made by the doctors or by the medical team so uh, do you feel like you're getting a straight answer or does that make sense to you? Um, it doesn't doesn't make complete sense to me, but I am not a medical professional, so I am just the parent. So I am still trying to process that and um, really figure out, you know, whose decision it is, because I know that her doctors want the best for all their patients, and they want to help as much as they can. So I think with Adrian Dix saying that, it might have actually given a little bit progress to the situation maybe now more doctors can use that and slowly start opening um the door to taking in more elective surgeries um yeah Right. And, and, and I guess even using that word too, I think we tend to think when we hear the word elective surgery, we think of it something that's not life altering or something that you, you could continue on your life just fine without do it, without it. But mm-hmm. clearly that's not the case here. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the tough thing is this surgery for Jocelyn technically isn't urgent. It's not like if she didn't have it today, you know, she's, going to die um but you know it's the wait. so with some elective surgeries and with Jocelyn as an example the longer that it's put off it can take long-term effects on Jocelyn so and it affects her daily life so she goes to school and she's having pain and she's at more risk of getting an infection and then she's on the antibiotics longer and longer and longer and it's just the wait for the elective surgeries can, you know, take a toll on their health as well. Right. right. That's uh, what's just so frustrating, for lack of a better word here. Uh, Kaylee, we'll leave it there for today, but I do hope uh, that we get some good news or that you get some good news and and there's an update on this in the days to come. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this. And I hope that Jocelyn is okay. Thank you so much, Jill. Well, some numbers put out earlier today from BC Ambulance shows that the overdose calls are at the highest levels ever recorded. Every day in this province, close to 100 people overdose, and many of those result in 911 calls. And in many cases, people are brought back. However, as we know, that is not always the case. Every health region across the province has seen some areas that have had increases, places like Vancouver Coastal, an increase of 24% in calls. Fraser Health has seen an increase in 45%. But we're looking at a couple of places in BC where the total number of overdoses have actually decreased. So we wanted to talk to the mayor of Quinell because Quinell is one of those places and Mayor Bob Simpson is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Can you hear me now? Sorry about the connection. That's okay. I can hear you uh, loud and clear. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Can you talk a little bit? It's still, the number isn't zero. The number still, I think, for Quinell, even with that 25% decrease, still 157 overdoses in 2021. Uh, How is the situation in Quinell? Yeah, the number is far too high. And again, looking at raw numbers like this uh, discounts, 
the value of each of the human lives that are involved in this. And every one of these individuals had aspirations and, you know, are missed by family members in the community. So uh, we've been, uh, because our numbers are so high, and they were very high in 2020, Uh, It has brought attention to the issue, and I think there's an all-hands-on-deck approach being taken. Our peer community, and in particular uh, some of the individuals working at our shelter, uh, have really ramped up uh, the delivery of services uh, for those uh, who are street-entrenched. And we've been working very closely with both BC Housing and Northern Health Uh, to try and provide housing solutions and more robust mental health and addiction services, particularly at the street level, uh, to try and get on top of this and and to not just deal with the overdoses, but to actually prevent individuals from going down that path and and try to get them uh, back into some of the services that we can provide uh, for them. Uh, do you think, does it help given if, if there is the more of that community approach or if, if we're talking about being in a situation where maybe anonymity is a bit more difficult? Yeah, so there's two different um, populations uh, that the statistics represent. Uh, one uh, is the population that's more street oriented. So individuals struggling with homelessness, individuals struggling with mental health and addictions that causes them to be on the fringes of society and and are being resourced on the street or through the shelter or through uh, supportive housing. And then there's another portion of the population uh, that are individuals, predominantly young men, uh, who work hard and, and play hard and uh, go from recreational drug use sometimes into addictions or have a bad uh, drug uh, in their recreational use that causes an overdose. So uh, the strategies we've been working on, we actually just spent three hours with Northern Health this past Monday looking at every aspect of our mental health and addictions response and the anonymity, the the real vulnerable target group is that young male group using at home alone uh, because of stigma may be not revealing uh, the level of their addictions and uh, you know a lot of our uh, uh, overdoses are in that category and there is a suite of resources available to those individuals but we're really struggling to communicate to them and to make uh, those resources available in a way that they will actually use them. Right. And and that's the the approach. And you kind of listed off what's being done as far as dealing with different groups or people who, who might find themselves in that scenario for whatever reason. Is it a combination, though, do you think of all of those approaches that you mentioned? Or do you see one particular part of that as really what's what's helping or what's really getting to people? No, it's definitely a combination. You know, this is what would be constituted uh, philosophically as a wicked uh, problem, and it needs a you know a wicked, diverse approach, if you will. Um, everything from we we actually have a program where a mental health nurse goes on the street with the assistance of our RCMP and bylaw officers and meets people where they are at make sure they're getting access to the services that they need and including their injections where they're at. We're just in the process of working with Northern Health to uh, open a formal overdose prevention site 
uh, and we're working with them. Uh, we now have what's called a situation table, so a critical intervention group, and that's being resourced with more mental health and addiction services. And again, two different teams that are going to be out on the streets as well. So as I said, it, it really is a a more diverse, more robust approach to providing services. Uh, but having said that, our overall death rate from overdose is is still very high. Even though we've seen the decline from 2020, it's still very high. And we need to use that as an impetus to continue to increase the resources we have to address this issue. And there have been calls, certainly in other parts of the country, for decriminalization of small amounts of drugs, for safe supply of illicit drugs. Is that something that's also happening in Quenelle, or is there more of a focus on treatment? Yeah, so the decriminalization, and again, I'm speaking from my own personal opinion, um, at this point, council's not taken a position on this, and the community hasn't really uh, had a debate about decriminalization. But I see... You know, I see that as a bit of a trap where politicians can run up the uh, the flagpole, this decriminalization agenda, but it really doesn't get to the heart of the issues. Uh, most uh, petty uh, use of drugs or or the you know the holding of drugs or whatever is not is not criminalized by police anymore. It hasn't been for a very long time. Uh, the issue is lack of resources to individuals, and the issue is that when individuals are ready to break that cycle of addiction, we don't have the services available to actually help them to expedite getting in uh, to uh, detox and recovery. That's what we're working on as our next steps. And also the robust resources on the mental health side, because a lot of addictions is a derivative of mental health issues. And being able to provide resources, particularly youth-oriented resources and family-oriented resources to address mental health issues before they lead uh, to addiction is critical in all of our communities. And, and that was the focus of our discussion on Monday with Northern Health, and it's the focus of our discussion with BC Housing. We would, For example, we would like to see our next supportive housing initiative, and we've got a very uh, significant investment from BC Housing over the last three years, and we've got more being built now uh, on that supportive housing and affordable housing front. But we would like to see one aimed uh, at families uh, where supports are being provided to vulnerable family families where they live so that we can break uh, the cycle of mental health issues leading to addictions and leading to people being homeless and all of the things that we're seeing, including overdoses. So I think, you know, the, the decriminalization is great for politicians to get on the bandwagon of decriminalization. The real issue is breaking the cycle, providing mental health resources in a much more uh, robust manner than we currently do. And then when people are ready to come out of the addiction cycle, giving them the resources that we need uh, to get them into detox and recovery. Hmm. Which I think is is so much what what people are trying to do uh, elsewhere as well. What's the the population of Quinell? Is is it around 25,000? Yeah, so our, our service population is around 26,000, uh, and uh, the city proper hovers around 10,000.
All right. And and I know, like you said, the, these are numbers and we can't lose sight of the fact that every number is a person, is a family member, is, is a human being that we're talking about. But when we look at, again, these numbers put out by ambulance to say that the, the overdoses in Quinell are down by 25 percent. And, and again, knowing that, that, that it's a human toll, do you think that it's because, is, is there part of that because people are getting help and are, and are getting out of that, that cycle? Or is it also that people have been lost? People, a fair number of people have died. Yeah, I, I, so I think the critical um, statistic that's missing for us is, is actual naloxone use. Uh, so that we know the number of people who have been treated using the naloxone to avoid death by overdose. Uh, those are numbers we always have a hard time getting um, because I think part of what we're seeing is more widespread availability of naloxone, more widespread knowledge on how to use it, and so more interventions, uh, particularly through our peer groups uh, and through our shelter. Uh, and so that's uh, causing the death rate to decline, but I'm not sure what's happening with the actual overdose rate itself. All right. Well, Mayor Simpson, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this and going through these numbers and what's happening in the population there. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Take care. Well, rainfall warnings, heavy rain expected in parts of B.C. In many areas, it is already falling. And, of course, a lot of attention is being paid on the Fraser Valley at this point, given the fact that we saw that catastrophic flooding back in November. Here's what Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun said earlier today. If something happens in, in, at the Nooksack and all of a sudden Mount Baker starts shedding water with the rising of the freezing level up over 2,000 metres, that's a concern. But right now it's not a concern. But if it happens, uh, then we'll deal with it. So we wanted to check in with one of the farmers on the Sumas Prairie to see how things are going. And Matt Dykeshorn joins us once again. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. It's not a problem. Uh, how are things going out there today? Uh, it's pretty wet. Uh, it's just, yeah, just been a steady rain today. Um, ditches are rising, but they're, they're not at a concerning level yet. That's that's good to hear. Uh, had you recovered from the last time we spoke to you, and, and people will remember, we, we talked to you after seeing those photos of cows that you had to bring inside and they were being fed inside in one of those the rooms on, on your property. How have things been since then? Um, we've, uh, we did a bit of cleanup, and uh, yeah, the barns were in, in pretty good shape following that flood. Um, two weeks after the first flood, we actually ended up evacuating the herd out of fears the Nooksack was coming again. So then we were back for a week, then we had a couple weeks to get our legs under us, and then we've been dealing with freezing temperatures since then. So, so yeah, the last, uh, the last few months have been a challenge on the farm for sure. Yeah, for putting it uh, putting it mildly, I think. Um, we talked to you as well, and unfortunately you had mentioned some of the losses uh, that you had personally uh, suffered because of that flooding. We know many other farmers uh, have also lost animals. Do you have a better sense on exactly what was lost in that flooding? Not not really. Not Nothing more than uh, what's been reported in the media. Um, that's, that's not something I we like talking about or, sure. or asking our neighbors, how many cows did you lose? But uh, yeah, I know there, there were some significant losses on certain farms for sure. 
We've also been seeing people that are coming together as far as offering up help or asking people what they need to to get through this again, like you said, as more rain is falling in the area. What are your thoughts on kind of how the community has come together and, and rallied through this? Oh, it's been incredible for sure. Um, there's been everything from, from cash donations to um, in-kind help, um, different products warm jackets, uh, food, it's uh, bottled water when we were under boil water advisory. Um, the, the help has been absolutely incredible. And is, how is it as far as getting around with the infrastructure? And I know we obviously saw mudslides affecting some of the major highways. How is it as far as, as getting around now? Is it easier now? Uh, in Sumas Prairie, the roads are in good shape. Um, the city was very active in restoring any damage um, as soon as possible. Um, we're we're still de- dealing with uh, challenges with the, the mountain passes um, as a farming community because a lot of our imports are trucked in, um, so that we're still dealing with that. But the, the Sumas Prairie is in pretty good shape. That is good to hear. And I guess a big difference, too, with what residents are doing and coming out and helping people. I know there's also been a class action lawsuit now filed to try and recoup those losses, uh, that action against the city of Abbotsford, uh, the Fraser Valley Regional District, as well as the provincial government. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on on the fact that that is going ahead or that 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 has been filed to try and recoup some of those losses? Um, At this point, I haven't... uh I haven't pursued that. Uh, I've spoken with the mayor. I've actually had him down on the farm looking at the damage. Um, I prefer to work hand-in-hand with them first, and if that doesn't work, we'll we'll explore other options. But I think that uh, having a cooperative working relationship with the city will probably get me further in the long run. Right. How long have you been farming in that area? Um, My family bought this farm uh, in 98, and... uh, my dad's been farming in Sumas Prairie since, well, since he was young. So the family's been in the valley for, for many decades. And do you, are you confident moving forward that things will get back to, to some form of normal or will it go back to what it was like before? Well, largely that depends on what uh, the officials in Whatcom County do. Um, the Nooksack River is our, our big headache. We, our, our system can, can sort of deal with the rains here, um, but it's when the Nooksack comes over, that's when we have real challenges. And no, to be, to be honest, I'm not overly optimistic they're going to deal with it. This has happened a couple of times in the past, and there, there just doesn't seem to be a real appetite in Washington State to, to deal with the river properly, at least not an appetite um, with, uh, with the officials that can do something about it. Right, and and something then I guess not to overly s- simplify it, but something that would mean that when we have record rainfall or the these kind of weather events, the the Nooksack wouldn't automatically be diverted into Canada. Yeah, basically they've got to do a better job of either dredging the rivers or shoring up their dikes to to contain the water that comes down from uh, from Mount Baker and the the foothills there. Because right now. Um, as soon as we get a heavy rain event, the water seems to uh, spill over. Like the dikes just aren't uh, aren't lifted as high as they should be.
And that's something that the mayor, we heard in that short clip from Henry Braun, he was asked about that earlier today. And he did say that at this point, that's not a huge concern today. But he also said, you know, six hours from now, that could change if we start seeing that water come rushing down from the mountain or if we see that happening. How concerned are you that we might see that again in this period of rainfall? Uh, I've been watching the Nooksack levels. Um, it, they seem to have tapered off this morning, and they may rise a little bit yet. But I, given that the rain is supposed to end, the the intense rain is supposed to end in the next few hours. Um, I think we're in pretty good shape. We may see a little bit of water spill over, but it, it definitely won't be like it was in November. All right. And I wanted to ask you uh, one other question about your cows, because again, that picture when you brought the cows in, when there was just that intense flooding in November, uh, you, you mentioned at the time that they quite liked being inside or they uh, became accustomed to that quite quickly. Were you able to get them back outside? Were they, were they uh, miffed that they had to go back to being outdoor cows? No, they, uh, they ended up in a box stall with uh, lots of deep bedded straw. So they're they're doing really well we uh we actually nicknamed them the fab fab five <laughs> they're they're enjoying life a lot for sure all right well thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today uh, i so appreciate you taking uh, some time out of your day and i uh, hope things stay as dry as can be out there absolutely thank you well, some exciting news. If you're a Shakespeare fan, the University of British Columbia has acquired a complete first edition of William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies. It is an extremely rare book, and it was published seven years after Shakespeare's death. Joining us to talk about what a great thing this is, is Catherine Callsbeek, head of the Rare Books and Special Collections at the UBC Library. Catherine, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. My colleague, Greg Matthew, is also just joining us on this call. Excellent. I was just going to say, I think uh, Gregory Mackey here as well, Associate Professor in the Department of English Language and Literatures, UBC, and Norman Colbeck, Curator at RBSC. Thanks so much, both of you, uh, for being here. Uh, Catherine, I wanted to start with you. How exciting is it that the UBC Library has acquired this book? Oh, there are no words. We are we are so excited um, uh, to have um, had this donation take place, and um, today is sort of the culmination, I think, of two years of very intense work. Yeah. Yeah, two indeed. years, indeed. <laughs> almost to the day. So, uh, I would say that Greg and I are both feeling quite um, celebrative today, very joyful. Uh, it's been quite a journey to get to this point and to bring this book to um, the library, but today today we are celebrating and uh, just so grateful to all the many individuals um, who helped make this happen and who contributed um, financially, contributed morally, morally yeah. moral support, and so, uh, yeah, it, we're, we're thankful today. And Gregory, can you talk a little bit about just what a big deal this is as far as bringing this into the public and and showing people and making it accessible to people? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think it's a, it's, a, it's a big deal because and one of our uh, our main goals here was was to sort of redress as much as we could the way that cultural property is that magnitude is so badly distributed around the world. 
and in Canada too. So there's only one other copy of the first folio in Canada. Now there are two copies. So we've doubled the count, as it were. Um, but it's a really exciting moment um, <clears throat> for Vancouver, for BC, um, not only for UBC, to have it exhibited at the Vancouver Art Gallery with the maximum number of people, we hope, um, COVID rules notwithstanding, will be able to um, see the book in, in person and, and experience some of the intangible uh, magic. Because the thing about a first folio is that it's, it's more than simply um, the words that were preserved there, although that's certainly a big part of its appeal. It's also a time machine. It also takes us across and through history, 400 years of it. Uh, and we're really excited and really humbled also, I guess, to be, um, to be the, the permanent custodians of this, of this item now. And Catherine, what are your thoughts on it or, or just knowing that this book is, is coming to be and is going to be part of this collection? Uh, we, we, oh, what are my thoughts? We are so excited to now have this huge responsibility, I think. Um, it, it's it's uh, such a gift to the university, but it also is an immense responsibility. And we are already looking forward to when the book comes back to UBC um, and we are able to share it with the UBC community, the faculty, the students, um, but also our wider community, because as a public institution, we take very seriously our um, public mandate, our responsibility to ensure that our collections are accessible by the people of British Columbia, by the people of Vancouver. And so we're thinking really carefully now between now and when the book comes back about how we provide access both virtually and physically um, to this incredible um, virtual cultural artifact. Uh, and you mentioned as well, uh, Gregory, that this is only the second copy in Canada. There's only 235 copies around the world. Um, from from what I'm reading uh, on the release, uh, the nine other copies on the West Coast are all in California. Uh, you mentioned yep. as well the all the people that kind of came together to make this happen. Are you able to say what what a book like this? I mean, obviously priceless, but are you able to say what it cost? We are absolutely not able to say that. <laughs> So the deal, um, Christie's um, brokered a private sale, and um, Christie's is not only an auction house, but they also are, are, are can act as, as brokers for, for objects and items like this. Um, and what we have done is we have, with um, the support of a consortium of donors, been able to acquire an item that was privately owned and bring it into the public realm. Um, but um, the seller, um, whose identity remains unknown to us, um, was in the United States, a collector in the United States, um, uh, wanted to make sure that the, um, the, the price remained confidential, so we have to be bound by that. Um, but I can tell you that um, if anyone is going to compare this to the Christie's auction sale that took place in October 2020, um, this copy did not set any records for price. Okay. <laughs> All right. Can you, uh, for, for uh, those of us who haven't been following along that one, can you tell us what that one went for? Yeah, that one went for just shy of 10 million U.S. Wow. Wow. It's a collector's copy, whereas yeah. this copy, it's more appropriate for teaching and learning and bibliographic uh, research. It has a number of really exciting um, kind of qualities about it that really make it um, something that I think our uh, faculty who specialize in Shakespeare, they're very excited to do some further research into 
into this particular copy of the first folio. So um, although our copy doesn't meet the standards of a uh, collector necessarily, for um, a university collection, it's just perfect. All right. We only have a couple minutes. Catherine, I'm curious. Obviously, when it goes on display, there will be so many layers of protection. But when you get this book, will you be able to touch it? We have an amazing conservator. Her name is Anne Lama. um, And she is very connected to uh, her colleagues at the Folger Shakespeare Library. The short answer is yes. You will be able to touch it if you have clean hands. But you will um, have to, I think, engage in a short tutorial with our conservator, Anne Lama, prior to engaging with the book. Um, And so we really want to ensure that this book, um, we put the necessary sort of uh, procedures and guidelines in place to ensure that this book lives on for another 400 years. It's celebrating its 400th anniversary next year, birthday next year. And so we want to make sure that although it's going to be used in teaching and learning, we really um, protect it for the future. When do you anticipate it will be on display? So currently the exhibition runs through the end of March at the Vancouver Art Gallery. It runs through March 20th. And then following that exhibition will be a period of time where the exhibition is dismantled. So we anticipate it being back um, at the university probably in the late spring. All right. Well, thank you so much to both of you. Such an exciting story. And so many people, I'm sure, uh, will be so excited to see this. But thanks, both of you, uh, for coming on the show to talk about it today. Thank you for having us. Well, we have talked to a lot of chefs, a lot of restaurant owners throughout this pandemic. Generally, we've been talking about some of the issues and the obstacles given COVID-19. But this is a story about a new launch of a new brand. And this name will be familiar to you because Miru Dalwala has been on the program many times before, co-owner of Vidge's Restaurant. And Miru is back with us again today. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi. Uh, you have launched a new baby food, which is very exciting. Tell us about mm-hmm. it. Yep, I call this my pandemic project. <laughs> and uh, I've been working on this idea for about, I think, since my own daughters were toddlers. And then, you know, pandemic hits, vidges, ups and downs and everything. And, you know, I, I just started thinking about my existence, about this world, and what am I actually doing and um, one of the things that I've always wanted to do professionally is connect climate change, connect the health of the soil, which is so crucial to what I do as, you know, somebody who cooks with produce and animals and so on, um, and to nutritious, but making it, you know, as accessible to as many people as possible, because a lot of times things that are organic and the word, you know, regenerative and fair trade, all of these kind of somehow ended up having like a class bias to them. And so, you know, I'm an, I was an awesome cook for my babies and my toddlers. I, I was really bad at potty training. I never got them to bed on time. Um, but cooking was just something that came very natural to me. So, you know, my pandemic project, I came up with a baby food product. It's from BC, healthy, beautiful soils. But at the same time, Jill, I wanted to make this as accessible as um, possible. So it's an income-based uh, product that I've got here. So you're still getting that awesome product, but... How do I make it more accessible? You have a choice based on your family's own unique circumstances. Um, I don't ask on the website. We don't ask, you know, what are your circumstances? But we say, you know what, this is our cost, $3.50 for this beautiful, beautiful, healthy baby food. But if you want to pay 
less, you pay less. If you want to pay more, you pay more. If you want to pay the price that we've got it set at, it's up to you what you want to pay. And it's really just kind of connecting my hands, Jill, to the farms and the soil and the very first human beings that really do. It's a human right, right? It's a human right for a baby. Babies don't get to choose, you know, where they're going to be born. Um, you know, to level that playing field with just really beautiful health. Get, get the baby, get your baby to start off on the right foot nutrition wise. Right. And and I think who could disagree with any of that? Interesting. And you kind of answered this question because I was curious how you were going to make that work, being that it was income-based without actually means testing people who are purchasing the products. But it sounds like you're going to use the honor system. It's going to be the honor system because I refuse right now. I, I'm not going to become a cynic. I'm, I'm going to just sort of make an assumption that when people get together, especially on the topic of babies, I don't think people are going to cheat or lie or anything like that. And you know what? And if somebody does need to pay less, it, that, that's fine. I've, business people as well, I think, you know, um, we have a much bigger role to play than just, it's not just creating a product. We have a role in terms of um, our response. What, what, what can we give back? Right. And so I've decided this time around, I've got Vidges, you know, I've got the business. What is, what is my contribution to this? And it's going to be trust. And you know what? I don't need to become super rich off the baby food. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm it looking- was a, it's a heartfelt project. And we're going to have it available from the Vidges website. If you are, I mean, we're basically, we're saying, you know what? We're now a fine dining restaurant. And when you get your pickup, you know, your takeout, you can also order baby food. Which made is, by the same chef. The same <laughs> chef is making the baby food. <laughs> Which is pretty amazing and also not what you would automatically pair together. In fact, I can't imagine ever thinking, oh, I know what, what pairs with this great dish, baby food, but why not? Why not? Why not have your baby eating kind of the same beautiful, get your baby hooked on awesome flavors as well early on. I mean, that's when babies start. Yeah, five months, babies, think about it. Five months is when they're starting to see color. If you can just imagine, and red is the very first color a baby sees. And then at six months, they're starting food. That's a lot happening in a baby's you know, little body at that time. And so it just excites me. That's all. It just, from six months to 12 months, it just really excites me that I'm, I've, I've come up with four products that are you know, connected to my BC soil. And they're also connected to, hopefully, as many babies as possible getting this food. I'm looking at the website now at those products and like you said they're very colorful but it's also this is not the the mushed up peas or the smashed banana people no. might automatically think of when they think of baby no. food so tell us a bit about the what goes into this so uh, I actually when I even at Vidges when I'm cooking at Vidges I'm not just thinking of myself I close my eyes and I become a customer so I actually over the pandemic became a baby I close my eyes what we think tastes good or doesn't taste good is not what a six-month-old is going to think. So these are also textured foods. So when it goes into your baby's mouth, your baby's going to make a face like, like what did you just put in here? I have to chew. So you, it, it, they're textured baby foods. And these are ingredients that are not, they're not out there. And um, your baby has to work at it. And so the sooner your baby starts working at it and being curious about the food, the more confident your baby is going to be. And I've made it colorful going back to, you know, babies have just started seeing colors. So why not connect the baby's eyes to what the baby is eating as well? Exactly. And I'm guessing, though, probably not the same levels of spice as some of the other foods. No spicy. <laughs> no, I've used turmeric. Um, in one of them, I've used a little bit of fenugreek. Um, 
But another thing is babies need a lot of fat. There is no limit to how much fat your baby gets because that's what your baby needs for the brain. It needs a lot of fat. Um, your brain, not the baby. You know, it means brain. Um, and then also the organs to protect the baby's organs. So there is no limitation on fat for babies. So I've tried to incorporate, um, you know, extra virgin organic olive oil, fat from sunflower seeds. Um, and the blueberry one, I've added organic sour cream. Um, I really... I pretended like this is my baby. <laughs> and so this is how I put the foods together as well. Like it's, it's what I would have fed my daughters. And sure, they're my own recipes. And that's what makes it fun. So it's not something you're going to, it's something that you would want to cook for your child. But maybe, you know what, you're not a great chef. So somebody else has made it as well for you. I'm looking as well. They look extremely fresh. Are these foods that maybe, do you need to um, consume them or make sure they're consumed pretty soon after getting them? So I made all the my I've made them myself. They're prepared by my hands. I've measured it all out. So once they're so here, hence they're frozen, and then once they thaw, they're good in your fridge for ten days. And um, and one more thing, I just want to do a shout out at. So if you go onto the website, so my good friend Shira Bluestein of Acorn Restaurant, this is her baby. She had a baby during the pandemic. I didn't have access to a lot of babies because of all the um, you know the distancing. And so, yeah, that's baby Alita. And so she was my baby taster, my tester. And so uh, that's the first Bambiri baby on the website, Shira's baby. <laughs> She's uh, very adorable. <laughs> and in I, the business. We I, kept it in the business. Yeah. I feel like in this picture, too, she, has, uh, she maybe has more food on her hands and her forehead yep. than she maybe yep. consumed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, right? It depends on if you let the baby, you know, your baby eat him or herself or if you're feeding the baby. But that's what that food is there for. The more hands-on, I think, the better. Uh, tell us the story, how you came up with the, the name of this, Bambiri. Yeah, so I was born in India, and uh, my parents are Punjabi from Lahore, which is now in Pakistan, but at the time it was part of uh, British India. And uh, um, it, I, it was a nickname. My parents called me uh, Miri Bambiri. Miru is my first name. And Bambiri in their ancestral Punjabi it's actually a spinny top that goes from one point while it's spinning to another point to another point. But it's a metaphor for a social and happy baby. And so my nickname was Miri Bambiri up until both of them died. My dad died in 2017. My mom died in 2019. And it was basically just I was a very social baby um, as soon as I could sit down. And I, I mean, I'm a very social person. And so and it was in honor of mom and dad that I put it. I called it my Bambiri. Oh, that's uh, that's amazing. And what a fitting nickname. Yeah. They, yeah. And so I, I wish they were alive to see this happening. They'd be thrilled because I remember growing up. Don't call me that. I, that's embarrassing. Don't call me Bambiri in front of my friends. And uh, here I am. I've got my baby food company named after that. Oh, amazing. Uh, you mentioned this, but just so people know for sure, you mentioned through the website, which is mybambiri.com, uh, but yes. people can also, so if somebody comes to the restaurant or if they're placing a takeout order from Vidges, can they also order it that way? Yes. So we're going to get that going probably tomorrow and Friday. Uh, I just launched the website yesterday. And so on about probably by Friday, you know, very, very soon, you know what you're ordering your, you know, your lamb curry or your coconut vegetable curry and alongside you can order baby food as well for the baby. 
I think the only I love it. I, it makes me giggle because I just love that we're doing it. No, I think I think it's great. The only I can see parents though uh, thinking, well, how am I going to keep the food up to that level if we're not eating this every day? Because, like you said, it's so colorful. It's got the texture and those flavors. Uh, it's going to have to. I, I feel like parents might feel they have to up their game on the non-Bambiri baby food nights. Well, um, you're going to have to order four of those dishes at Vidges because it's just not price. Um, it doesn't make sense to get one at a time. Right. right. So four of your baby purchases equal one of your dinner purchases. And so you'll have enough for the next day as well. All right. What a great yeah. initiative and a positive thing uh, to be doing as a, as a pandemic activity. Miro, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thanks so much for coming on the Thank show. You. Thanks, Jill.